Looking back at life 100 years ago in Kilkenny, this is the History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. It's just coming up to 10 minutes past 6 and you're very welcome along to the final episode in the current series of The History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and thanks so much for tuning in one last time as we once more rewind the clock 100 years to Kilkenny in 1922. 10 weeks, where or where did the time go at all? Well the good news is tonight is just as packed as any other week so let's see what's coming up. Executive Librarian with Kilkenny County Council Declan McCauley tells us more about the Coolbon ambush of 1921 and the project that celebrated its centenary last year. In our final look back at the local papers in 1922, we have reached December, a pivotal month locally and nationally that year. And we'll be reminiscing on all that we've covered here on The History Show over the past 10 weeks with a retrospective montage of all the main events that occurred in Kilkenny 100 years ago. As I said, a packed show ahead. I hope you stay with me for it. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you'd love to, if you want to get in touch rather with the programme, you can text me on the KCLR text and WhatsApp line. That's on 083 306 9696. And that, of course, is in association with dinnersready.ie. Or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr ninety. And you can listen back to previous episodes of the programme online at kclr96fm.com forward slash the history show or on the KCLR app. But first this evening, as promised last week, we're headed back to the picturesque village of Inishdeeg and indeed to Woodstock House and Gardens. Eddie Cody is back with us and I hasten to add by popular demand because so many of you listened and indeed got in touch with me since last week's programme on which Eddie first featured. For those of you that may not be aware, Eddie is the son of the late Willie Cody. Willie, throughout his working lifetime, was the estate manager of Woodstock House and Gardens. This very important and prominent position gifted Eddie unrivaled access to the remains of the house, the grounds, the records and indeed the many famous stories about the estate during his youth as he frequented the site with his father. Last week we heard about the remains of the house and the overgrown gardens that one time surrounded it. This week we'll be hearing some folklore about the site and the paranormal events that Eddie encountered there during his youth. Let's pick up where we left off, the immediate aftermath of the burning of the big house. So, Eddie, I suppose in the aftermath of the burning of the house, um, I believe that the garden came into some state of disrepair. Is that fair to say? Yes, uh, it it did. The gardens were... uh, abandoned, completely abandoned and uh, of course everything went, then went wild, grew wild and if if you're standing here where we are now, uh, we are looking straight now at the, at, the, at the house, at the ruins of the house well if you're standing here in my young days you couldn't see the house because <coughs> that panel there <coughs> that's between us and the house, all the shrubbery in that had grown up 20 feet high and you couldn't even see the house there you go and so the gardens as well and we're looking out at them here and they're looking resplendent they're absolutely gorgeous they were not a thing back then also I'm guessing ah no 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 everything was completely overgrown yeah it's a testament to all the men and women that worked so hard on it over the years to, to get it to the state that it's currently at now and Eddie we're going to take a walk over here to this um 
far kind of gable wall here, I suppose. And um, you have a, an interesting story about this as well, I believe. Uh, yes. Um, sometimes my father and there were, there were four men kept on after the house was burned. But the four men operated a fishery uh, that they had down on the river. The fishery was known as the, the big net. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I've seen more in the high part of the season. I've seen more than 100 salmon, maybe 120 or 130 salmon being caught on the big net in, in one day. Uh, and now the, the fishery is finished. The fish are in it no longer. Mm. But, uh, yeah, where we are here now... Um, I remember one of the men who worked on the estate um, and his, 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 uh, his father and grandfather had worked on, in the gardens uh, previous to the, to the man who was there in my young days. Uh, Paddy Croke was the man's name and Paddy's father uh, had worked in the, uh, for the estate previous. And uh, Paddy, I remember one day, they, uh, the men would be up here doing some work, maybe repairing fences or cu cutting up a tree that had fallen. This would be in the off part of the fishing season when the, they wouldn't be working on the fishery. And the, they, they would often come up here and repair a, a fence or a, a tree that had fallen or something like that. But I remember Paddy telling, telling us uh, that there in that spot near the corner of the terrace garden here and between the t those two trees that <clears throat> there was the black and tans had a party uh, one night in the house and a lot of drink and so on and during the course of the evening one of them came out and came down from the house there and around the corner of the terrace garden just to that, that spot there. I remember Paddy pointing it out, the exact spot, and he took his revolver and shot himself right there, right there. And uh, <clears throat> then uh, I remember Paddy telling that story. I was very young when he told that story and pointed out the spot. And I saw evidence of it after, written in in uh, some story about Woodstock. So it did, ha it did happen, yes. But some years after then, uh, when uh, the men would be working maybe out, somewhere out in the gardens, uh, cutting up a tree, I remember, a tree that had fallen. And after school, I'd love coming up here. I'd come up to visit the, my father and, uh, and the workmen. And I'd love going out to with them there while they were working cutting up the tree. That time there was no chainsaw, it was a big cross cut oh that they worked. They would have known they were using that I'm sure. They certainly would. But I'd come in that way, there was a gap in the wall over there and I'd get in and I'd come in through the courtyard, get in through the gap in the wall and walk along by that pathway there pass, I'd have to pass by where the black and tan had shot himself and I was only very young at the time, going to school, maybe 12 years of age. And I used to be scared to death. 
passing that spot because everything was overgrown and mm. it was a real lonesome spot at that time. And these, the two trees there, they had grown massive and grown in close to each other. And I'd have to pass there on that pathway. I used to be scared to death in case the black and tan would appear to me or yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, isn't it extraordinary though how all these years later that um, you know there, there, people do still have connotations with certain spots and places don't they? They do indeed yes. And there do. is a kind of eerie feeling here as well but um, yeah so that's a, so we're standing unbeknownst to many people I'm sure who have passed this exact spot we're standing at a, quite a historic place here. Yes indeed yeah 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 there's quite a lot of history attached to this place there is yeah and there's something else that scares you as well i believe oh yes greatly scared me i used i'd pluck up enough courage then and i'd pass along there and i'd be looking over my shoulder when i'd pass by the place and i'd go over there and up the steps and i'd walk up the center path there up along but as i mentioned a while ago all that place on both sides of the path was grown up high and you could only you couldn't see either side of you only straight what was straight ahead of you on the pathway and at that time there were goats roaming around on the in the gardens here and big a big uh, billy goat with them we we used to call him a a puck on when we were young and this fella had big wide horns like handle, like the handlebars of one of the old motorbikes. And uh, I used to be scared to my life that I'd meet him when I'd go around one of the corners there of the sunken panels. And, uh, but usually, you could, you, depending on the way the wind was blowing, you could smell him. There was a real wild smell from this big billy goat and long hair on him. Usually you'd, you'd smell him before you'd see him. But on a couple of occasions, maybe when the wind was blowing the wrong way, I went around the corner and there he was facing me. And he would st stand on the middle of the path and stare at me with very human-like brown eyes. And he wouldn't move off the path. And I used to be afraid that he'd... I'd stop in my tracks and uh, I used to be, he'd stare at me and I'd stare at, back at him and he wouldn't move and I used to be afraid that he'd make a charge at me. So uh, I'd, have to, I'd have to walk backwards then to get away from him. And uh, uh, I'd, uh, I'd come back then this, the way I had come and I'd have to pass back again then by where the black and tan had shot himself and I'd try and find another way around the upper part of the garden to get out to where my father and the men were working, uh, cutting up the tree. So it was a, <laughs> a quite a scary adventure. Yes, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so Eddie, this billy goat that you spoke of, when you were a younger man, you believed that it may have been a reincarnation of some sort. Is that fair to say? I did indeed, yeah. I, I was only a young young fellow and 
I'd come up here after school and go out to my father, but I'd meet, come face to face with this big billy goat. And the face was so human-like. He had a, a beard, the goat, and brown eyes. And he'd stand there in the middle of the path, staring at me. And I'd stare at him and I'd be afraid to go any further. And then I began to wonder, could this ever be, with the human-like face, I began to wonder, could this ever be William Toy, who has come back in another form? And he's, he's, he's letting me know that I came in here without his authority and, he, and that he's not going to let me pass this way. And I, I began to wonder that, and I was really frightened in case he'd charge at me. And, and years later, I was so frightened that years later, when I was in Africa, and I was confronted by uh, a, a pack of lions on, on the roadway at night time, and, and I can safely say I wasn't as scared when I was confronted by the lions as I was when I was a young fella and confronted by the big wild-looking billy goat there on the pathway going through the terrace garden. Well, wasn't that appropriate uh, for the week that's in it coming up to Halloween? Such a big thank you once again there to Eddie Cody for speaking to us on the History Show this evening, recounting some of the folklore legends and memories of Woodstock House and Gardens. Right now it's time for a commercial break, but don't go away because when we come back, we'll be hearing from Executive Librarian with Kilkenny County Council, Declan McCauley, about the Coolbawn ambush of June 1921. You're on with John Moynihan on the History Show on KCLR 96FM. Stay tuned, I'll be back shortly. Turning the clock back to 1922, you're listening to The History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back. Anne has texted in to say that, that that Billy Goat is frightening the daylights out of me. Brilliant show. Thank you, Anne. Uh, yeah, you weren't the only one. I was a bit frightened by that myself. Now we're going to hear about what is perhaps the most well-known and talked about moment of the Civil War in Kilkenny, the Coolbawn ambush of June 1921. The ambush that was planned for Saturday the 18th of June should have been one of the largest altercations of the War of Independence era, not just in Kilkenny but in the whole of the southeast of Ireland. That's if everything went according to plan, but things did not work out for the IRA. Instead, the hunters became the hunted and the ambushers became the ambushed. Let's hear more about the event now with the Executive Librarian of Kilkenny County Council, Declan McCauley. Declan, can you remind our listeners of what exactly happened on Saturday, June 18th, 1921? Well, 1921, we were sort of bang in the middle of the War of Independence. And, of course, there was a lot of pressure on the local volunteers in Kilkenny to take action, you know, against the British forces, you know. So the Coupon ambush very much falls into that pattern, you know, because Castle Comer, as you may know, is a very unusual area in Kilkenny because it actually had a mining industry, actually. And one of the things that was used in mining was gelignite, which was an explosive 
explosive, obviously. And when they, under the British administration, and the use of explosives was very tightly controlled, actually, you know, you, it, it generally. So the Jagnite used to be transported out in Comer to the mines in Comer on sort of a regular, a regular pattern, and it was uh, protected by English soldiers in this period when it was travelling to the mines, you know, from the depot where it was kept. So the idea they came up with was they would ambush the, the convoy, you know, heading to the mine with the troops on it, you know, and this would be would be seen as success. But it didn't start to work out the way they had planned it to. And this is the background to the Kuban ambush, basically. So on, on the 18th of June was the day they decided they were going to do this, but there was disagreements out in Comer. Now, the, the man who was in charge of the, the volunteers in general out there was a man called George O'Dwyer, and he had come up with this idea, but the locals out there didn't agree, actually agree with the site for the ambush. And secondly, they had an agreement with, with, the, with the workers out there in the mines that they wouldn't disrupt the mines because basically it was in, in, in paid work, which was quite scarce in Ireland in those days. So there was a, a sort of a, a tacit agreement there that you know the volunteers wouldn't do anything to interrupt the mines out there but they decided to go ahead with anyways but the problem was a good lot of the volunteers didn't turn up on the day and some of them weren't available as well because they were actually no they were actually working that day and again they didn't want to lose wages and things which are the highlights in some ways being like all these sort of wars they were being fought by volunteers they weren't soldiers so it was just a slightly amateurish sort of uh, thing about this so on the day the ambush was going to happen, and he was one. There was a man out there going to work, and he worked for a lady called Flory Draper. Now, they 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 lived in a place called Finsborough House, which they, they had quite a large farm. They had uh, a, a couple of hundred acres of, of land out there, and they were loyalists actually. And he was late for his job that day because the volunteers had had blocked off the road, and she copped on there was something going on. So she she decided she'd go into Comer to to warn the, the Crown forces. Now, all the routes into Comer from that area were supposed to be blocked off, but again, because not all the volunteers had turned up, it didn't happen. So she went into Comer, and, and as, as a result, the British were notified about the ambush. So they decided they'd ambush the ambushers, basically. So they actually outflanked the ambushers and started firing on them from behind. And it was basically the Royal Devonshire Regiment was involved in this, but there were some black and tans as well. And unfortunately, two men were, three men were shot and two were killed. One of them was a man called Nicholas Mullins, and the, and the other man was called Sean Hartley. And it was a third man, James Doyle. He was, uh, he was uh, wounded, but he survived. And because good lot of the local volunteers hadn't turned up on the day, Sean Hartley, for example, was 23, was from Glenmore. Now, he worked here in the town. And Nicholas Mullins was 28, and he was from Thomastown, which they do with the two casualties of, of the thing. The rest of the volunteers slipped away afterwards, actually. So it was a bit of a disaster, really, for the volunteers on the day. But there was repercussions afterwards because the volunteers decided that Flory Draper had to, had to pay for what she'd done, basically. Now, some of the locals wanted her shot, but that didn't happen because the volunteers were very worried of, of you know, of targeting women. It was very bad publicity. A woman had been executed down in Corkfront Farming and it had been very bad publicity, so they didn't do that. But a crowd arrived out there at Finsborough House at the farm, basically. She lived there with her sister. And uh, they basically burnt the house down. Now she she climbed up on the roof and she was she survived in a war tank with her dog. But they were basically burnt out of the place, anyways. And they ended up uh, going to England afterwards. But after the after the independence, they actually looked for compensation from the Free State government because there was compensation available for people who had big houses and things burnt down. But he only got four hundred and fifty-two pounds. So. 
On the same day as the Coolbon ambush down in South Kilkenny, just to mention, the, the volunteers had more successes since the crossroad. They actually had a successful ambush on the same day. So the 18th of June 1921 was actually one of the busiest days in, in Kilkenny during the, the War of Independence throughout the Civil War period. The funerals of Nicholas Mullins, Sean Hartley and indeed George O'Dwyer were quite big events at the time, weren't they? They were quite big events and there was, you know, there was a bit... It was a bit of you know, a hassle would uh, you know would the um you know, the crown forces interfere and things like happened at all these funerals and things you know they were very big events because I mean there were two young men basically you know and they basically were were shot in their own area they were shot in coma you know so they were very big events all the funerals that period were big events because again it was a great way obviously for volunteers to get more publicity for their cause was the Coolbawn ambush arguably the most talked about event in Kilkenny throughout the Irish Civil War I think it and the Friary Street ambush I was there with the Friary Street ambush as well you know because um, the Friary Street was different because I mean, there were civilians killed you know and out in Coma it, it actually showed you know that not everyone was on the one side in the Civil War you know that we had and the War of Independence you know that there was a group of loyalists and people of the loyalist and unit tradition in Ireland you know who were drawn on board you know because we were inclined to get this view all the time you know that it was started very much you know, the whole country united, you know, in the struggle. But that wasn't the case. It was it was mediated everywhere by local circumstances and things. And of course you had the mines out in Comer and the Wandersworth as well. That all fed into the sort of the, the view out there of these things. Declan, could you explain for our listeners how the Heritage Office in Kenny County Council marked the centenary of the Coolbawn ambush in June of last year? Last year we we are, we had we we got uh, Owen Swinton was to uh, you know he's the author of of of, of the Kenny Times Revenge. Owen did a podcast for us because we were still sort of half in and half out of you know the COVID COVID at that stage. You know, in normal years like this, you know, we would probably had had a lecture in the library and things. But we, we didn't do that last year. We did a podcast because we weren't sure you know where we'd be you know the way it was last year at any particular time. So mainly last year, what we commemorated all these events was was a podcast basically. Is there a memorial of any description to commemorate the event in Coolbawn? There is a memorial there and a project we did, uh, or maybe 2021, is we got, um, we got um, a photographer to re-photograph all these sites around Kilkenny and they're on the Kilkenny Digital Archive so you can log in there and there's actually photos of the memorial out in Coolbawn on it there. There's a good memorial out there. For anyone that's listening that might like to learn more about the historical events that occurred in Kilkenny throughout the decade encompassing the War of Independence, what would you recommend that they do, Declan? I recommend the first thing to do onto the library website and they click the Our, Service, Our Services tab. We have a whole section there on resources for, for the decade of centenaries, which includes podcasts, images, you know, digitised documents and things. So you can have a look there first. The, the library also has a large stock you know, of general history books covering that period. And lastly, if you come into the library, you can use the, uh, the Irish Newspaper Archive, which is an online service where you could have a look at the Kenny people you know, for those periods you want to get how it was actually these things were reported in the local, local papers. So there'd be three things I would use anyway. We've just, uh, we've just put up online, we've digitised the first four volumes of the Kilkenny County Council Minute books that cover that period from 1910 to 1925. We got those digitised as another decade project and they're available now online for people to have a look at if they want to go in and read the minutes. Because when the County Council was only set up, you know, in 1899, so it wasn't running long, you know, when this period started, you know. So there's lots of fascinating information in there, you know, on on the motions the Council has passed, you know, starting, you know, 1910 when, you know, the only show in Ireland was Home Rule 
you know, through 1950 and then up to the treaty, you know, and after the treaty. What a huge moment in the Irish Civil War timeline, not just in Kilkenny, but indeed nationally. Thanks to Declan McCauley, Executive Librarian of Kilkenny County Council, for telling us all about it. Right now, it's time for another commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be taking a listen back to some of the more memorable and indeed often poignant moments that we've heard here on The History Show over the course of the past 10 weeks. You're listening to Casey Lord's History Show with John Moynihan. I'm here with you until 7 o'clock. The History Show on KCLR, with thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. Tuesday nights from 6. This is KCLR's History Show. And you're welcome back to part 3 of the History Show. As it's our last edition of the History Show this evening, and because so many of you have texted or emailed me over the past few weeks wishing to hear a specific item or piece once again, we're now going to listen to a retrospective of some of the more memorable and indeed poignant moments that appeared on the series of the History Show over the past 10 weeks. So sit back, relax and enjoy this trip down memory lane. the 1920s from 1900 onwards uh, lots of, a lot of people uh, ate local food from local farmers because we did not have a farmer's market back in the day so the food was brought into the towns and villages and around the country and milk came in a churn and you bought the milk from the milkman in the churn you didn't have bottled milk delivered uh, especially in the country areas like we have today then again around the coastal towns especially uh, a, uh, usually a ginnet or a donkey would actually supply fish around to them and then people also forage at that time they were great for berries and nuts in the autumn like they would they would make blackberry jam and they'd forage crab apples make crab apple jelly they'd get nuts like walnuts from the trees hazelnuts all those sort of things they also snared rabbits shot pigeons the wealthy shot deer and rabbit and a lot of farmers killed their own pigs cattle and sheep a pig was a great kill it supplies pork later smoked bacon pig's head and uh, blood to make black puddings. Pudding Lane is called after the black puddings as the uh, cattle were sold on the fair green and the pigs were sold on the fair green and then they used to come down to where Pudding Lane is today and they would actually make the black pudding there. Kilkenny, uh, for all farmers, when they killed a pig, they would, the pork steak would be the prized piece out of it. And then pork was eaten by roasting leg of pork or a loin of pork. The pig's feet were given to the farm manager along with the pig's head. This was a real prize given thing. What he would actually do then is he would boil his pig's head, eat and and um, the feet and then they'd make brawn of what was left and with the hot meat off it they would eat like the, the cheeks. I mean we still have pig's cheek, they would eat cheek, pig's cheek and ear and tongue. And they served that then with uh, some cabbage and white sauce and boiled potatoes. Also in our first episode, oral historian Adrian Roach told us about the popular pipe and flute bands in Kilkenny in 1922. Marching bands uh, emerged um, in Ireland as part of an international brass band movement, uh, mainly during the middle and the late part of the 19th century. Um, They had a huge success in in Britain and the USA. 
Um, in Britain, you can think of the Industrial Revolution, um, all of the types of industry that emerged out of that. Uh, you had uh, collieries, ironworks and foundries, cotton mills, gasworks, shipyards. Most of those industries in, in whatever region or area they were, they were you know, manufacturing or working in, they generally had a brass band or some type of uh, marching band that would, you know, uh, help the workers and bring the, some of the workers in into the into the the, uh, the fold, as it were. Um, this movement was aided by the arrival of new um, portable horns, like the bugle, the saxophone, the tuba, which were easily carried, um, and the uh, the growth of literacy helped the spread of the in instruction manuals and sheet music, which became very popular uh, throughout that time as well too. In episode 2, Kilkenny-based author and historian Orla Murphy told us more about the Kilkenny men interned in Ballykinler. Really, the brochure and the article um, were inspired by my desire to find out more about Kilkenny men who were interned in Ballykinler, which was the first internment camp which was opened in late 1920 by the British and it was open for the longest time. Now, people are aware of Spike Island um, but Spike Island was only opened in February 1921. But um, the Kilkenny men who were interned in Ballykinler, I knew some of them, and my grandfather was one of them, Tom Tracy. And uh, I recognised names of others, about seven, and there were 14 names, and I knew one name was missing, Tom Nolan from Outrath. So I wanted to find out who were the lesser-known people who ended up there along with him. And that set me off on a quest of trying to find out information wherever I could and from whatever sources because there's not a lot written about it in the literature locally um, at the time like uh, people said oh I was uh, arrested and, and interned and then end of but Tom Tracy did write a lot about his experiences there in his witness statements in the Bureau of Military History so I had a good springboard and then I started delving more and also I knew there was uh, Tom Nolan's autograph book in um the Archaeological Society and autograph books were very popular amongst the prisoners so that was great because it gave me the names of some other people like MJ Tierney from Kiltorkin and London it said so that was another name to look into knew nothing about him so I did find out quite a bit about him and um, then I started um, looking at work that Jim Lawler had painted of the interior of the hut where the men were they were all in these Armstrong huts 25 men to a hut and there were two camps in Ballykinler. So uh, they were spread over the two camps for their duration. And Tom and Jim and uh, Tom Nolan, they would have been there for a full year from December 1920 to after this treaty was signed in 1921. Now, some of the other prisoners weren't uh, interned for as long um, and some were released a little bit earlier too for various reasons. But it was a fascinating subject and the newspaper archive was a great help also in untangling who might be who um, and I found amongst the lesser known people there were men from Glenmore and there were men from Castlecomer and I'd love to find out more about those particular people. Episodes 3 and 4 were dedicated solely to the executions at Kilkenny military barracks. We spoke to Larry Scallon. The guys are marched out, they're put up against the wall here. Uh, they're shot dead together. There's only records of one volley of shots. There's a, re a report in the newspapers by a gentleman who, who is said to have been a relative of John Murphy, said that he only heard one volley of shots. It is known that there was two priests present, Father Dre, who was the 
Barrick Chaplain, and Father Kavna, who was the parish priest of St. John's. So we would imagine that the, the priest would have been with them spiritually uh, for the, 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 the last, you know, while they were in their cells and brought out here, and they would have then anointed them uh, as soon as they were both shot and, and they were lying, uh, I assume, here, mm. dying or dead on the ground. They, both John Murphy and John Phelan are buried in the barracks here in unconsecrated ground until 1924. And funnily enough, three guys that were executed in Wexford in 1923, Crean, Parle and Hogan, their bodies were buried alongside Murphy and Phelan, then unknown to everybody in County Wexford. And uh, they were they were not handed back to their families until 20, 1924, two years after the executions. John Murphy and John Phelan currently uh, lay at rest in a, I think it's called St Mary's Graveyard in Thomastown, opposite the church there on the hill. And I've been there and I can't find their headstones and I believe that both of them now rest in unmarked graves in Thomastown Cemetery. Military Barracks Kilkenny, 28th of December 1922. Dear Mother, just a line, the last I shall ever write you. John Phelan and myself are to be shot at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So this will be the last time I shall write to you. Mother, do not be downhearted. God is good. I am sending a brooch to you in memory of me, and I am sending the cigarette case to Ned. I am sorry I did not get a chance of meeting you all. I was with Pat until this evening, Thursday. And so far, he does not know what is about to happen us both. Goodbye, mother, brothers and sisters, with best to all, from your loving son, John. P.S. I am quite satisfied to meet my God, volunteer John Murphy, Kilkenny, Number 2 Brigade. In episodes 5 and 6, we heard about some of the Kilkenny women who played crucial roles throughout the Irish Civil War. We spoke to Anne Tierney, President of Kilkenny Archaeological Society. One of them was a, a woman who wasn't born in Kilkenny. Uh, she was born in Longford. Her name was Moya Killeen, and she was born. She'd been born nearly uh, 18, 1873 in Longford, and her mother died when she was very young, and and she was brought up by her her grandparents. But she married a Roscommon man in eighteen ninety some stage, and. He was a manager and working in Belfast and they were both Roman Catholics and they had a couple of children. But the the district council and poor law um, legislation came in allowing women to sit on on those those organisations. And both Moria and her husband John were um, representatives for Granard and this was really quite an important achievement for a woman at, at that date but she then moved with her family in 1905 to, to Enniscorthy and they had a public house and John then got a job in 1911 as a commercial manager of the Kilkenny people so they moved to Kilkenny at that stage with their young family and they got involved both of them with the Gaelic League and they educated their children at home. And she was a strong supporter of women's rights. And 1913, there was the first women, uh, women's, Kilkenny Women's Suffrage Society meeting in the t- town hall, and Moya Bly was in the chair. 
and she was elected president. Now, the, 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 the next meeting was a year later in 1914 and again chaired by Maria Bly and was a speaker from the Dublin-based, I think, the Irish Women's Franchise League. Um, and Thomas MacDonald was a member of that, as were the, the Sheehy Skeffingtons. Shortly after that, we have World War I beginning, and, and the cause of women's suffrage was put to one side, and it was also seen as a bit of a distraction from home rule. But at least we have evidence that work was done in Kilkenny and that Moya Bly was really at the centre of it. One of the topics discussed in episode 7 of the History Show fashion worn in Kilkenny 100 years ago. Fashion writer and blogger Ruth Griffin told us more. So 1920s Ireland, um, it's brilliant looking back over the 100 years. Um, it's amazing to think we're looking back at 1922. Um, and fashion in, in Ireland, a lot of people look back and, and, and look at our history, especially fashion history, and think because of our troubles and because of our history that um, fashion didn't really play a big part um, but the thing is that while Ireland isn't uh, a fashion country or doesn't have a fashion capital we still were very interested in it and there was still a huge amount of retailers and dressmakers and tailors and department stores across the country that were feeding into everybody's passion for clothes. So be it you're dressing yourself for a Sunday best or and um, you were really into your style, there was something for everybody. Um, but like if we're kind of talking countrywide, many of the main towns and cities, so like your Kilkenny or your Carlo, would have had a very large drapery store or department store. And they would have had, um, you know, a selection of goods that they would have sourced in places like Dublin or further afield. In episode eight, Joseph O'Neill spoke to us about his uncle John Morn, who was accidentally shot dead in Kilkenny military barracks in 1922. I just felt this year that there could be a commemoration of sorts. And there was no mention. I mean, 100 years later, uh, John is 100 years dead. And it's almost as if he never existed. Uh, And that's a bit sad as far as I'm concerned. They were a very strong, hard-working family, each and every one of them, I can vouch for that. They, they reared their families well, uh, and uh, a lot of their children became very successful. So it, it, it's something that I, I felt needed to be rectified. And uh, I, I don't believe the story has ever been told. And that's why I, I got in contact with yourself, because I knew you were the man to go to. And um, here we are. Finally, over the course of the last two episodes of the History Show, we've been hearing about the burning of Woodstock House in Ishtig, which historian Owens Within Walsh explained more about. Local anti-treaty IRA take petrol from a local garage in Ishtig village and bring their own petrol, however, however much they can get their hands on. They go up to Woodstock, break in, they into the house, they uh, break some windows, they create a draft, they also try to pile in any furniture they can get into the middle of all these floors, uh, display the petrol around the place and set the building on fire. And that's basically what happened. The main bulk of the Georgian house is burnt down 
uh, a bit of servants quarter wing attached is saved but the building is basically ablaze uh, pretty quickly on that uh, Saturday morning. Well, wasn't that wonderful to listen back to all of the fantastic contributions made by all of our talented and eloquent contributor contributors that have appeared over the course of the series. I'll save my thank yous for the end of the programme, but a very quick word of general thanks to each of them. And a quick reminder that the entire series of the programme is available to listen back to right now on kclr96fm.com and on the KCLR app. It's time for our last break of the evening, but when we come back, we'll be taking our last look back at the local papers in Kilkenny as we've reached December 1922. I'll be back in two. Exploring the lives and events of 100 years ago in Kilkenny. The History Show on KCLR. With thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. Alas, the clock is against us. We won't get to our papers, unfortunately, but I'll upload that as a separate podcast item. Just before I sign off uh, for this series of The History Show, I just have a few people to thank, if you don't mind. First of all, I'd like to thank KCLR CEO John Purcell and manager Pat Gardner for their trust in me and allowing me to take on this hugely enjoyable project. I'd like to thank John Keane and Ken McGuire for their help in training me in on this very elaborate desk here in Studio One. Big thanks, too, to Owen Carey, who sat in with me on my first night and made sure that I didn't blow anything up and for keeping me calm on what used to be a nerve-wracking experience. To Brian Redmond and Ethna Quirk, who did some vocal and presentation training with me at the outset of the show. Nicole Olivario, who promoted and podcasted the programme on our social media channels. And a very general thank you to everyone in KCLR for their kind words and encouragement throughout the series. I'd like to thank the Heritage Office in Kilkenny County Council also for their support and assistance, particularly Darvila Ledwidge, who was the Heritage Officer in the County Council when I took on the project initially. And the best of luck to her, her new role. Thanks too to Declan McCauley in the local studies library, who was a font of information and contacts, and to Owen Swithin Walsh, who contributed to the programme many times and was so kind with his time and knowledge. And indeed, a big thank you to absolutely everyone that contributed to the programme in one form or another over the past 10 weeks. Last and certainly not least, I'd like to thank my partner Denise, happy birthday to you, for her constant support, belief and encouragement, and to my parents for all that they do also. And thank you to you too, the listeners, for listening and for being so kind in your comments throughout the series. Alas, I think that's enough thank yous for one series. I'm John Moynihan, this has been The History Show. Owen Carey's up next with Fully Loaded. Until I speak to you again in the near future, please God, take care and thank you for inviting me into your homes. Good night and God bless. Turning the clock back to 1922, you're listening to The History Show on KCLR with thanks to the Heritage Office of Gulkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media.